It is a privilege to be part of this service today. Thank you so much for having me. Ken has asked me to speak about this topic of racism and the Christian faith. I have no idea what comes into your mind as those words pop up on the screen. But it's a very sensitive subject, isn't it? Don't need me to tell you that. I think partly because we all come at this from very different angles. You know, some of us were born in the UK and have always been part of the majority culture. Others were born in the UK but have always been part of a minority culture. That's been my experience. Others were born elsewhere but came to this country many years ago. Whereas others of us have actually come to this country very recently. And each of us will engage with that question in a different way. I'd love to tell you about three friends of mine who have completely different perspectives on this. So I've changed their names. But the first one, let's call him Carl. Carl is a black British man. And for him, the struggle against racism has been pretty much the, one of the biggest issues of his whole life. Multiple run-ins with the police. Same for all his mates. And he's just been so angry for so long. And now he's just exhausted. And if you ask him, he'd say, he'd say pretty cynical. Now, everyone wants to talk about racism now, and he's just not persuaded that anything is likely to change, whether in the culture or in the church. Then you've got Claire. And she's grown up in the UK, but never had to think about racism until very recently. And she was completely shocked by the George Floyd killing and the wave of outrage since. But she doesn't really know how to think or talk about these things now. Actually, she tells you she's a little bit nervous because of what she hears about white privilege and white guilt. As a white person, she doesn't really know how to respond. How should she teach her daughter growing up in a multicultural city? Then there's Terry. Um, he's a slightly older guy. And I mean, he thinks the world's gone mad, basically. He remembers 40 years ago what real racism looked like, he would say. You know, the kinds of things people would say and do which are completely unacceptable now. He thinks young people, people today, have just become very, very sensitive and are quick to be outraged about everything. And he thinks what's happened with some of the protests and on social media has got way out of hand. You know, what happened to good old-fashioned respect for other people, for the police, and the value of hard work? He's nervous today. Everyone wants to think of themselves as a victim and blame the system. You, you can imagine having a conversation with him. He's, he's not afraid to share his views. But here's the thing. Carl, Claire and Terry, they're, they're wonderful people. I think the world of all of them and none of them are racist. And they all love Jesus. But they come to this question with completely different perspectives. And you wonder, how do we even have a conversation? If our starting points are so different, maybe you, you can relate to that yourself. Well, here's the thing. We look on social media or even the print media. That's not how to have a conversation. Name calling, virtue singling, cancelling. It's very angry. It's very heated, but it's very divisive. Imagine instead if we could have the kind of conversation that's thoughtful and honest and considerate where people from different backgrounds with different experiences all are able to be heard. And even if they've got real problems, are able to come together and move forward. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I know that's what we all want. Actually, if we look at our Bible passage today, that's exactly what happens. In Acts chapter 6, it is a remarkable passage of scripture. 
Acts chapter 6, as we look at God's word, I hope you see wherever you're coming from today, whether you're angry or anxious or just feel overwhelmed, if we care about these issues of justice and equality and racial harmony, I hope to persuade us from God's word that the good news of Jesus Christ really is the hope for our world. So look with me at at Acts chapter 6. You may know Acts is volume 2 of Dr. Luke's account. Volume 1 was Luke's gospel, which is all about what Jesus began to do in his earthly ministry. Acts is volume 2, what Jesus continued to do now that he has ascended into heaven. And we're told right at the beginning that the game plan was to have witnesses, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth as the good news spreads. Which means right off the bat, we should know that geographical and ethnic diversity is not an optional extra. It's right at the heart of the plan of King Jesus who's in heaven for his church now on earth. But you see, the the church is growing. Look with me at verse 1. The church is growing now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Sounds great, but there's a problem. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There's a problem and it's discrimination. Now, these were probably all Palestinian people, ethnically, Jewish backgrounds, but they were two different language groups. The Greeks, those are called the Hellenists, they spoke Greek, and the Hebrews, who spoke Hebrew, Aramaic. And somehow, in the... In the way things were set up, the Greek-speaking widows were getting missed out for the daily food distribution. It is what we might call a form of systemic bias or discrimination. Now, I must say, I am a bit nervous when we use the language of systemic racism too quickly, just because I fear sometimes it can be very vague and imprecise. You never know who's done something wrong against who. What's the injustice? How can we be sure it's about race and not something else? And my fear is even if asked those questions, the person who asks them gets called racist by an instinct, which seems more likely to try and silence someone than actually have a discussion. But here, do we see, I I think there is a very clear, precise bias that's going on. These particular women are being missed out. And it is a system problem. It's the way things are organised. You see, no one person is is deliberately um, hating the Greek-speaking widows, as far as we're told. It's not deliberate, it's not malicious, but it is happening. It's a systemic discrimination. Now just back up with me for a moment and think, why is this even a problem? Why, Why should we care about discrimination of this kind or any kind? Now you might be offended by me even asking the question. It seems outrageous. But if that's the case, it's partly because whether we realise it or not, we have been influenced by a Christian way of looking at the world, which is really central to God's big story. See, right at the beginning, God created human beings in his image. Every single person without exception, age, background, skin colour, all made in the image of God. And that is the fundamental basis for real equality, which we long for. But of course, we know chapter three of the Bible, our first parents turned away from God, turned to sin 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what every single person now does. Which means the world is broken. Our hearts are broken because of sin. And like a virus, it spreads to our offices, in our families, in countries, and even in churches. See, it's a virus that's far more deadly than COVID. And yet, because of what the Bible teaches us, we can be honest about it. Because all of us are in the same boat as being sinners. We don't have to pretend we've got it together. We don't have to pretend we always get everything right. No, we can be honest. We can think about injustice and sin in specific, precise ways and seek to address it. Which I know is exactly what Ken would like as a church for you to keep thinking, keep engaging. And in fact, lots of churches in the country thinking about these issues personally. But we can be honest. And wonderfully, the good news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ came to fix the problem of sin. And to draw to himself people from every tribe and tongue and language. To unite different kinds of people. And we know that it's possible through the cross. See, when Jesus died, he paid the penalty for our sin and he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He made peace, peace with God, but also peace with one another. And we're told he created one new humanity, which means we're one family, one community, one church. And as we look ahead to how the story ends, well, you've been looking in Revelation. We see people from every tribe and tongue and nation coming together around the throne of Jesus, the Lamb. See, if the gospel gives us real unity, well, looking ahead to the new creation gives us real hope. However dark things may look now, well, the darkness doesn't win in the end. The light will triumph. The sun will rise. The lamb wins. So do you see Christianity gives us the things we long for? Equality, honesty, unity and hope. So now jump back in with me to Acts chapter 6. Because here's the problem. Discrimination in the church actually undermines all of that. Which is why it's such a problem. The problem was discrimination. And then the danger... There's actually two dangers. First was division. We said, you know, Jesus died to create one new humanity. Well, here there's two groups in the church that could possibly split. And it might just be that we think it's easier for a Hebrew church and a Greek church. That's easier. Or, yes, the Greeks are welcome, but, you know, they'll always be bottom of the pile. This isn't really their church, but they can show up if they want. But neither of those is acceptable if Jesus came to create one new humanity. So there's the problem of division, which is a big problem in the background here. But there's also the problem of distraction. I don't know if you noticed that. So verse 2, the, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They were called, commissioned by God, to the ministry of prayer and the word. And even something as important as this food distribution thing getting sorted out, well, that wasn't their ministry. And therefore, the solution we see was delegation. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And we read down, that's what happened. They appoint these seven blokes. Do you notice they've actually all named for us here in the account? And they're all Greek names, which seems significant if the issue is that the Greek-speaking widows were getting left out. Well, here is a specific solution. These particular guys commissioned for this ministry. It's important. And then what's the outcome we see? Where does all this lead the result? So realize in the, in the spread of the early church, this is a pretty big moment, what happens now. There's discrimination that threatens division and distraction. The apostles decide to do delegation. What's the result? Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase and multiply greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The result? Dramatic growth. Isn't that amazing? What started as a problem that could split the church actually grew the church. And wouldn't it be wonderful as we think about these issues of division today that could threaten to split churches? Wouldn't it be wonderful if indeed it would grow the church? But we need to ask ourselves, well, what does all this mean then for us today? What about racism and the church? Very briefly, a few quick starters. These are just starters. It will take a lifetime to work this stuff out. But, but Ken has asked me to help make a start. So firstly, look out for who gets left out. See, that was the big problem here. The, the Greek-speaking widows were getting left out. It wasn't deliberate. Wasn't, nobody had any malice, we think, but they were getting left out. I wonder what that's like for you. Where's the challenge? Thinking, oh, welcome. People show up on a Sunday. Who do we talk to? Is it just people that looks like us, sounds like us? Well, if that's the case, who gets left out? Or certain things we do together, the way we organise. I remember a few years ago that um, a church we were at, it was quite normal after church for people to go to the pub and have a drink. And a, a newcomer came and very warmly she was welcome to come. But actually, she was quite put off by the invitation because she was a single mum. She had a young boy. She was like, how on earth can I come with you to the pub? You obviously don't understand me and obviously it's not for people like me and suddenly without meaning to it's clear she'd been left out by the way things were organized that can be really important in our welcome but also in our hospitality where do we really make the effort to, to let people into our lives and our homes and who gets left out that'd be worth thinking about in terms of the people that you engage with and pour yourself into and welcome into your home long term. Who gets left out? Of course, it's true when we think about our discipleship. You know, what does our vision of the Christian life and Christian growth look like? Do we think maturity looks and feels a certain way? Maybe it looks and feels like middle class, university educated culture. We'd never say it like this, but we think the mature Christian has a slightly posh accent. Culturally, I mean, even if not literally. Who gets left out? And I think a really big one, which our church here, where, where I am, I'm thinking about as well, is this question of leadership development. Who do we look to as leaders, future leaders, 
Who do we train and encourage and equip? And who gets left out? Is it just we, we think, you know, in terms of serving in a small group or leading the children's work or being up front on a Sunday or any number of leadership positions that we invite? Who, who gets left out? And is it because of character or gifting or some particular fair reason why they're not suitable? Or is it just, oh, we've never even considered them? We assume, you know, that maybe their face doesn't fit. We, people, it's not for people like that. We, we've never articulated that out loud. But look at the evidence. Look around. Who gets left out? That's a searching question. And I know it's one that Ken is keen for you to engage with it at a number of levels. But here's the thing. We must move past that. See, don't just talk about it. Do something. That's the amazing thing here in this passage. They, they spotted a specific issue, this discrimination, and they came up with a specific solution, putting specific people in the job of putting it right. And, you know, my, my friend who's cynical that things will ever change, well, actually, in the end, talk is cheap, but actions are powerful. So we mustn't just talk about it. We must do something. But as we do that, we must be so clear. Strive for unity, not conformity. The goal isn't to, to get everyone sounding the same or looking the same or kind of for it to be neat and clean and tidy. The goal is actually for people to be on the same page, the same team, but who are com completely different in other ways. By background, by culture, by language, by ethnicity. It's not that we have the same skin colour or the same accent or dress the same way. It's that we have the same saviour and we're part of the same family in Christ. See, it would have been so much easier for those Greek Christians and Hebrew-speaking Christians to just go their own way, have separate churches or kind of separate groups within the church. You know, you think you've got the British crowd and you've got the African crowd and you've got the Iranian crowd and I don't know what all the groups might be for you. In many ways, that's easy. It's just not what Jesus calls us to. One new humanity, one community in Christ. The gospel is better than just uniformity in separate groups. The gospel gives us unity in diversity. I must say, just one of the dangers I've seen, you read things about race and racism at the moment is, I think it's in danger of dividing people. The language is so aggressive and puts people in camps about white privilege or black power or white guilt. And it's very, whatever we think about the ideas, as Christians, the way that we speak and the way that we engage should seek to draw people together and unite, not divide. I think this is a real danger for us if we get this wrong. And yet, of course, Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you show love to one another. So love means listen, love means learn, love means say sorry. And love ultimately means the way of the cross. That's what love looks like, laying down my life for the sake of another. Including another who might be completely different to me. That's what the world needs to see from us as a church, not the virtue signaling, divisive, split into corners, echo chamber thing that they can see on the internet. That's not gonna do good for anybody. 
actually they need to see us as an ordinary, messing up but learning, saying sorry and forgiving community of different people, but who all love Jesus. And so love the people that Jesus has brought to us. Strive for unity, not uniformity. And wouldn't it be wonderful if that's what people see when they come to St. Joseph's? Isn't that what we want? When people come in the door or even just tune in online, that vibe. But lastly, let's long for gospel growth. You see, it's easy to think of even something as big and important as race. It's easy for that to become an all-consuming passion. But to forget, you know, if, if course, if there are specific instances of discrimination and bias, we must act. We must be honest. We must try and put it right. But if we're a Christian, we must realize that our story and the story of race and racism and, and injustice is part of that bigger story. The story of the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if we've come to him, we know that that's the most important thing. It's why the apostles had to keep going with the ministry of prayer and the word and, and delegate that task of the food distribution because they knew that the calling was to make Jesus known. Because as we wrestle with these issues, which we must, I hope we'll come to see that Jesus is the only hope for a broken world. See, we see hostility in our hearts in the world. Well, he is the Prince of Peace. We see sin and guilt. Well, good news. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see evil and injustice. Well, he's the righteous judge who will judge the living and the dead. Justice will be done. Which means for us now, as we work and strive for, for justice and reconciliation and harmony, we know that this is where the story is heading. The Lamb wins. The darkness doesn't triumph. Jesus will reign. And he will have a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And our privilege now, here, in London or in Benwell or wherever you're tuning in from, well, we are to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. I'm really encouraged that you're all beginning to think about these issues and wanting to work. And I, and I commend you and I honour you for doing that. But let's remember as we do that, that our goal is to see people come to Christ. To be genuinely reconciled to God and to one another. And wouldn't it be wonderful, you know, as we do this, as we have these painful, difficult, awkward conversations, if we could look back like that Jerusalem church did and see, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. That's my prayer for you as a church family. May God bless you and may God enable you to serve him and serve one another and serve your community so that the gospel might grow and the Lord Jesus might be honoured. Amen.